Ugh, I love Jenny Kane. At this very moment, I'm feeling so comfy and cozy as I'm practically getting a hug from my Jenny Kane crop cashmere cocoon cardigan. I am enjoying this sweater so much that I've been living in it all spring long. And with Mother's Day just around the corner, this is a feeling you can gift all the well-deserving moms, moms-to-be, and mother figures in your life by giving them the gift of Jenny Kane. Along with bringing you this episode, Jenny Kane is a California brand through and through, and their staples make getting dressed so super easy. Think minimalist and effortless, but totally refined. Jenny Kane means luxurious cashmere sweaters, iconic accessories, elevated versions of your everyday basics, plus the most incredible home essentials. For a limited time, Birthful listeners get 15% off their first order. Go to JennyKane.com and use the code BIRTHFUL15 to get 15% off and support the show. Jenny Kane is known for their quintessential sweaters, with their cotton collection providing you with the perfect everyday pieces as the days get warmer. But they also have gorgeous sundresses in a variety of silhouettes for any occasion and spectacular sandals to go along with them. Find the perfect Mother's Day gift or curate your new spring go-tos at JennyKane.com. Birthful listeners get 15% off your first order when you use the code BIRTHFUL15 at checkout. That's 15% off your first order at J-E-N-N-I-K-A-Y-N-E dot com, promo code BIRTHFUL15. Get yourself and the mothers in your life the gift of Jenny Kane. Pregnancy and postpartum are some of the most nutritionally demanding times of your life, which makes sense because you're basically acting as your baby's pantry while pregnant or nursing. That's why the quality of your prenatal supplements is so vitally important. Hands down, the one I recommend is needed, so I'm thrilled to say that if you use the code BIRTHFUL at thisisneeded.com, you can get 20% off your first month of needed products. Needed is the number one nutrition brand recommended and used by me and over 4,000 practitioners, from nutritionists to midwives, functional medicine doctors, and OBGYNs. Needed is for anyone trying to conceive, pregnant, postpartum, and really, this is goodness you can use even before and beyond the perinatal years. Along with prenatals, Needed offers premium supplements for every stage, from egg quality support to a lactation support plan, a stress and sleep support plan, and a gut health plan. In fact, I've had clients rave about Needed's pre- and probiotic formula, saying how much better it made them feel compared to their usual probiotics. And to me, Needed's hydration support packets, which only have ingredients you can pronounce, are a must in any doula or hospital bag. Also, Needed's prenatal multi is available in capsules and easy-to-take vanilla powder for those with nausea or pill fatigue. Head over to thisisneeded.com and use the code BIRTHFUL for 20% off your first month of Needed products. That's thisisneeded.com and use the code BIRTHFUL for 20% off your first month of Needed products. 
Hey, Adriana here. I wanted to let you know that starting this week, we'll be going back to our older format of one episode per week so that we can start easing into the summer and you can have more time catching up and going through our fabulous Birthful Library. Happy listening. Welcome to Birthful Mighty Parent or Parent-to-Be. I'm Adriana Lozada, and for this next episode in our Nutrition and Nourishment series, we're going to explore how what you eat during pregnancy can end up impacting your baby's microbiome. And after hearing what my guest has to say, you may not be as worried about pooping during childbirth. I'm just saying. Now, If you have listened to the other episodes in this series, you know I'm practically on a quest to figure out if there's anything you can do proactively during pregnancy or even before to help you minimize your chances of group B strep colonization. And of course, I couldn't pass up the opportunity to ask a microbiologist about this. I mean, who better, right? The microbiologist in question is Dr. Ann Estes, who, aside from being an assistant professor, microbiome researcher, and mother of two, is also, as she says, the human host of the blog Mostly Microbes. In her blog, Ann helps distinguish research findings from hype, focusing on the microbiome, especially from pregnancy through the first five years of life, because she feels that that is the time where we can make the biggest microbial health impact. In our conversation, Anne will be sharing a bit about how your baby's microbiome gets seeded. We're going to ponder if microbes have anything to do with pregnancy cravings. And we end up having a really interesting conversation about how ethnicity can affect the microbiome. You're listening to Birthful, here to inform your intuition. Welcome, Anne. I am so happy to have you here. Oh, thank you. It's great to be here. Yay. And so you've been surrounded and, and analyzing and looking at microbes for quite a long time. I have. <laughs> I've always been fascinated with how microbes influence their larger hosts. We've been hearing a lot about birth and the microbiome, but what about the seeding of the microbiome during pregnancy itself? What, what can you tell us about that? Yeah, so I want to back up one step first and start with, we're talking about when we say microbiome, you know, that is such a vague term. So really what I, what we're talking about today is we'll be talking about, you know, the vaginal microbiome, which is one set of microbes that are very unique versus the gut microbiome, which is also a totally different set of microbes that's very unique and separate from the vaginal microbiome. And then you've even got uh, breast microbiome, uh, breast milk microbiome. You've got you know microbiomes everywhere. So, so what you're referring to with the seeding is the idea that a lot of times, and I'm sure all your listeners know this, but just just to get us all on the same page, we started seeing that when babies were born in a C-section instead of vaginally, they had very different microbiomes, and this also seemed to correlate with increased obesity and allergies and asthma and all these other things. Um, and diabetes. So what what happened, I'm not sure if this is the exact origin story, or, but I, I'm pretty sure it is. One of the lead microbiome researchers, Rob Knight, um, who's now out in California, his wife had uh, emergency C-section. And he had been doing enough research and knew about this difference in the microbiota between C-section babies and vaginal babies. And so the way he tells the story is, 
they had an emergency C-section after you know making all these plans for vaginal birth. And when they had to have an emergency C-section, he always has cotton swabs in his bag because he's a dorky microbiologist. I mean, that's we have all sorts of crazy things we carry around, right? So he immediately told his wife that what he wanted to do was to swab her vagina and then cover the baby. So as soon as the doctors left the room, they started swabbing their infant girl. And it took them hours, but they finally felt like they had swabbed her effectively. And they've, because again, he's really excited about microbiome work. He's tracked himself and his wife and his his daughter for quite some time now. And he, I don't think he's published that data, but um, he's talked about it several times. So anyway, after that, then Maria Gloria Bella Dominguez has started actually doing more work, looking at. Uh, and proof of principles of vaginal seeding. So the idea is that when you have a C-section baby, you incubate a swab in mom's vagina for an hour before um, before C-section. And then when the baby comes out, you swab their mouth, you swab their um, ears, nose, everything, and then full body in trying to mimic that vaginal birth. Of course, you're not truly mimicking vaginal birth because you're missing the hormones, you're missing the squeezing, you're missing so many other aspects that we still don't know about with birth. And so those things could also be playing into why we have these different microbiomes. But the idea with seeding is that maybe you'll try and replace some of uh, the difference between the C-section and vaginal birth. And of course, that's also talking about scheduled C-sections. With emergency C-sections, what we're seeing is that a lot of times these are pretty far along in labor when they happen. And so it seems like either the water's already broken or, again, perhaps it's these hormone differences or squeezing or whatever. Emergency C-section infants do have microbiomes more similar to vaginally born infants. So there is something to be said for it's really not just the procedure of C-section, but it seems like it's the process of labor that's important as well. Mm-hmm. What do I think of seeding? I think as long as people, um, I think in the U.S., we really are very careful about screening for group B strep, which is quite honestly pretty rare in terms of causing complications. But because when it does cause complications, they are so dramatic. We want to be overly cautious with that. So as long as mom's getting screened for GDS and she's talked to her doctor and things like that, I can completely understand doing vaginal seating. Mm -hmm. And so I think what I was trying to get, and and I love that you went through all that information because... Yeah, yeah, no, because it is totally important to know that the difference and that there's research being done out there to try to figure out how to even make this a protocol. But I think I was trying to go back to while still pregnant. We used to think the the placenta was this great filter, and now we know that it filters some things. It's it's still fantastic and great and, you know, super mighty, but it does let a lot of things go through because it's a symbiotic environment, right? So at that point, my understanding is that there is some seeding of the baby's microbiome by just being in, inside the body, being, you know, through the placenta in the womb. Can you talk to us about that part? So that research, I think the majority of microbiome scientists do not feel comfortable thinking that uh, the seeding occurs with the infant in utero. The 
data really aren't strong enough yet to say that the placenta has a microbiome in healthy babies and that this happens in utero. I honestly, from the different data that I've looked at and from conversations with a number of people, I'm still most comfortable thinking about the idea that the babies primarily gets their bacteria at birth. So, you know, there probably is a little bit because the meconium seems to have something, but at the same time, we could be biased by the techniques we're using because with the, and I'm not going to get into the details of techniques, but when you don't have much DNA to sample, which would be the case in the meconium, you're more likely to get false positives, to get something that is there when it truly isn't. So I think the jury's still out, and if anything, is still leaning towards the placenta not being inhabited by microbes or a place for microbes to cross through during a healthy birth. It mm. might be different in preterm births. Interesting. Okay. So that like tears apart my knowledge. It doesn't completely tear no. it apart. But it, 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 but so then it, it narrows the focus more in that since baby's microbiome is being seeded during a vaginal birth, mainly, right? That, that would be the ideal seeding. Yeah. And such seeding has to do with the vaginal microbiome. What can she do during pregnancy or is there anything or is there a point to them doing anything during pregnancy to have like the most optimal vaginal <laughs> microbiome <laughs> for that moment? Yeah, fabulous question. So I don't think it tears your ideas apart at all. I think it's just a switch in the way of thinking of it because really the the microbiome we can control probably the, the most is our gut microbiome, and it's the one that we know the most about. And when everybody talks about vaginal seeding and seeding of babies and infants, they focus on just the vagina. But I can't tell you how many different comments and things I've heard from different women saying that one of their greatest fears is pooping on the delivery table. And you know, as a biologist, like, poop doesn't bother me. I work with dung beetles. So, you know, that wasn't ever one of my concerns. But as a mom, and then also in starting to think more about birth and talking to doula friends, you know, the baby comes out, it, unless it's my baby, which both my babies were sunny side up, but babies generally rotate so that their mouth and nose are at the anus. And they're picking up bacteria from poop, from the GI tract too. They're not just picking up vaginal bacteria. They're picking up stuff from your gut. And that's what we can really do the most about. So that's where moms can be paying attention to, you know, what they're eating and, and going back to the good old, what mom told you, which are the fruits and vegetables and things like that and fermented foods. So I still think that diet is one of the most important things that women can do to have a healthy microbiome for themselves and their baby and start the baby off right. Okay. Wow. That I, my mind's being blown again. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, welcome to the world of microbiomes. <laughs> <laughs> now we're thinking about poop. <laughs> so what should people be considering or paying attention to during pregnancy, you know, looking forward to that better seating during the birth? 
So there are some really interesting studies going back to the gut microbiome work where your gut microbiome changes dramatically depending on if you're eating uh, fruits and vegetables or a vegan diet even versus meats and cheeses and, and lots of dairy. And honestly, all of your different microbes need a variety of foods. They don't need just one or just the other because a lot of your um, your E. coli that actually are helpful and produce some of the vitamins we need like vitamin B and vitamin some of the B vitamins and, and vitamin K, those actually use meat and cheeses to make those vitamins. So just going on one kind of diet extreme or the other is not a, a good thing, I don't think, from my reading. But um, just having a balanced diet and leaning more heavily to your plant-based, unprocessed food, like you know, cooked vegetables or steamed vegetables or even raw vegetables, but just getting away from the hyper-processed stuff that I think most of us find easiest to, to find in high abundance and cheaply. Right? <laughs> mm-hmm. But then also feeding on fermented foods as well. Which is a whole other fascinating topic. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> what about supplementation with like probiotics or prebiotics during pregnancy? Yeah, that, that's a fabulous question. So your prebiotics, in my mind, are fruits and vegetables. You know, it's what you're feeding your microbiome. So, you know, for my kids, like my oldest, both of them start off really well as toddlers in eating anything and everything. And their care providers were always shocked that they would eat spinach with cumin and things like that. But that's just what they were used to. And until my oldest hit about four or five, and then she started finding out about mac and cheese and looking at what it was in everybody else's lunch, and then it all started going downhill from there. But I've gotten her back by talking about those good bacteria and what she needs to feed them so they can be healthy and happy. And it's the same thing for us. I mean, the director of our institute, Claire Frazier, who sequenced the very first bacterial genome ever, <laughs> um, she was funny. I, hearing her talk one day, she was saying, you know, I'm like anybody else. I see cake in the fridge and I see a salad. I want the cake. I don't want that salad. But I know I need to eat that salad so that I'll feel better. You know, and there is a big connection between there's the gut brain axis. We're starting to learn a lot about where it seems like our bacteria are actually producing some of the compounds that uh, help with our mood regulation and things like that. So again, it's back to that good old, you know, reduce your sugar and eat lots of fruits and vegetables. And those are the prebiotics. Now for probiotics, I'm, I'm still kind of a little humbuggish, I guess, about <laughs> most probiotics. I think that the average person who actually is in good health, good health meaning you don't have any digestive system disorders, you know, you don't have irritable bowel syndrome or Crohn's disease or any of those things. And and also, you know, it seems like depression and anxiety are part of that balance as well. So you can kind of switch your microbiome a little bit by changing what you're feeding for those organisms as well, eating more fish oils and, and healthy oils and things like that. But, I, you know, in my mind, as an ecologist, as my fundamental training, what you have already picked up when you were a small child and then throughout your life is really what's going to be there. They're, they're the critters that have already moved in. So sometimes I think of this as an apartment building or a dorm. So uh, when you're filling up your apartment building or dorm, you want good residents. 
you want somebody who's going to pay the bills, they're going to keep the place clean, they're going to, you know, go to sleep and not, or at least not have loud parties. And so that's, you know, feeding your microbiome properly using fruits and vegetables and healthy oils can promote those good, good folks coming in. But, you know, once the rooms are occupied, you can't put any more people in there. If it's only one person per room, it's one person per room. So those spaces are filled. And you can't, even if there's a disruptive person who wants to come in and, and be in that dorm or in that apartment building, there's no space for them. So they can't live there. But if you start having people move out, your good neighbors moving out for whatever reason, then your disruptive neighbors can come in. So probiotics, in my mind, are kind of more like more like the, the disruptive neighbors. They come in, they might be good, they might be bad or helpful or not helpful, but they're not going to live there with you unless there's a space for them to live. Now, that being said, they can still come by and stand outside your window and make a lot of noise and be a pain in the butt, or they can plant flowers outside your window and, you know, make the landscape beautiful. So they can still do things that would influence your interaction and your well-being, but they're not going to take up permanent residence there. So that's the way I see probiotics. You know, there are some that if you're having real digestive system problems, then you can take antibiotics and try to get rebalanced using them. But there's not that many that have really gone through clinical trials and I think are substantive. Today's episode is sponsored by Acorns, and sometimes I find that investing gets put off because it doesn't seem urgent or because with our busy lives, we may not have the time to research and manage said investments, which is why I so appreciate that Acorns makes it easy to start automatically saving and investing for your future and that you don't need a lot of money or expertise to invest with Acorns. In fact, you can get started with just your spare change. So for example, I take advantage of Acorn's roundup feature where they round up the purchase amounts I make in my linked account to the nearest dollar, and then they automatically transfer that to my invest account portfolio. Also, Acorns can recommend an expert-built portfolio that fits you and your money goals, then automatically invests your money for you. For me, that's easy peasy investing. Head to acorns.com slash birthful or download the Acorns app to start saving and investing for your future today. Client testimonial may not be representative of all clients. Tier 1 compensation provided. Compensation provides an incentive to positively promote Acorns. View important disclosures at acorns.com slash birthful. Investing involves risk, including loss of principal. Please consider your objectives, risk tolerance, and Acorns fees before investing. Acorns Advisors LLC Acorns is an SEC-registered investment advisor. Brokerage services are provided to clients of Acorns by Acorn Securities LLC. Member FINRA SIPC. For more information, visit acorns.com. Diaper rash. It can be a truly uncomfortable experience for a baby. And so I find that one of the biggest conundrums when diapering is figuring out what diaper cream to use. So many options are thick and goopy, making them hard to apply and hard to wipe off. But I can personally say that this is not the case for Dr. Mom Butt Balm. Dr. Mom Butt Balm is a pediatrician-approved skin protectant that is free from dyes, preservatives, and zinc oxide, designed as a breathable formula to help maintain an optimal skin barrier while allowing the healing to occur. 
This butt balm was developed by a mom who is also a doctor, hence the name Dr. Mom Butt Balm, when she couldn't find any traditional products that worked for her baby's persistent diaper rash and she wasn't about to settle. So she created Dr. Mom Butt Balm to go on smooth and be easy to remove while also being gentle on your baby's delicate skin. With Dr. Mom Butt Balm, you can say goodbye to excessive wiping to clean your little one's already chafed skin. Dr. Mom Butt Balm is so soft and goes on so smooth that you'll only need a small amount instead of having to layer on a thick goop. Plus, it has a lovely minty scent. Learn more about Dr. Mom Butt Balm at drmombuttbalm.com. That's drmombuttbalm.com or look for it at amazon.com. So, you know how during pregnancy and we've been told to avoid this, don't eat that, you know, don't have the <laughs> the raw egg. And is that, do those recommendations from what you said, are those enough to kick out, you know, to kick out the, the neighbors and create more space? Or is it something like, oh, meh, it's not really going to affect your microbiome in the long term or during the pregnancy? Awesome. Yeah. So actually, that's where it's a little bit different with pregnant women, right? Because our immune systems are a little bit more sensitive compared to that of most people. So, so that we're not rejecting our fetus, right? So in that case, you know, you are still susceptible to things like salmonella and listeria and some of those bad guys. They can still get in because you have so many different versions of your immune system. There's the microbiome plays an important part, just the barriers that are present, whether it's the mucus layer of your gut or whether it's the skin layer, if you're talking about the outside of your body. Then you also have your backup immune system, which is your innate immune system, where your body is actually attacking things like your white blood cells and, and things like that. So, yeah, I would not <laughs> solely rely on my microbial partners to do it all. <laughs> Again, I think we're these organisms that are really a collection of both microbes and humans. So we need both parts of those, especially when you're pregnant, when your immune system is, your human part of your immune system is ratcheted down a little bit. So, yeah, I would still avoid deli meats for listeriosis. That is a nasty, nasty bacterium. And, and, you know, wash things carefully and be careful of salmonella and unbaked meats and things like that. Okay. Big concern for moms during pregnancy and birth is the status of their group B strep. Oh, yes. And that is something that's definitely microbial, right? Yes. So... Is there a microbiological, I don't know if that's a word, but microbiological way to discourage the presence of GBS during pregnancy and so hopefully have a negative GBS test outcome because you don't have a prevalence of GBS and don't have to have antibiotics during birth, which can then affect your baby's microbiome as they come through and in that seeding moment. So walking it back, can, yeah. can we do anything? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I, I remember being so worried about that group B strep test in both with both of my pregnancies and even with my first one where, you know, she's eight now and we didn't know so much of what we know now then. It was just my natural kind of fear of antibiotics, um, unnecessary antibiotics, I should say, um, because I certainly take antibiotics when I need them. But anyway... Yeah, so group B strep is really interesting. It's another one of those interesting bacteria in that 
for the majority of people who, who have it, it's not a problem. And in fact, it's I think it's only like 1% of babies who are born who are colonized by Greek strep actually end up having some sort of complication due to that. And it may even be less than that. I should have double-checked on that number. But it's really not, as, as much as we worry about it, the ramifications of group B strep, which are very frightening things, actually don't happen that often. The problem is when they happen, it happens quickly. And it's one of those things that, you know, as a mom, you're always told, oh, if your baby's temperature gets over 104, you know, it's an emergency. And that's why, because one of the things group B strep potentially causes is meningitis. So in that case, you know, you really want to catch it, catch it quick deal with it. And so it, it can be kind of easy in those those early infant weeks that are so crazy to potentially miss that and then have serious complications. So that's why we worry so much about group B strep. So that being said, a lot of people are carriers. Um, how can you deal with it? So in re- some of this new uh, vaginal microbiome studies that I was looking at, it's interesting because they really have found that women across, they they did longitudinal sampling of women across time. So they took non-pregnant and pregnant women and followed them and took samples, you know, every so many weeks. I don't remember how many weeks, but they surveyed them from first through third trimester all the way through birth, actually. And they looked to see if there are bacterial communities in the vagina, because that is where group B strep lives, if the bacterial communities change over, over pregnancy. And what they saw was that it really didn't change so much. There were a few times when it changed, but in pregnant women, overall, the community stayed pretty similar. So women who are dominated by lactobacillus, like lactobacillus uh, enters, they keep that throughout their pregnancy. Non-pregnant women, their microbiome, uh, vaginal microbiome communities fluctuate a lot more than that. And that's probably, or that seems to be correlated with hormonal changes throughout the month. So that's kind of interesting and helpful that it's stable and suggests that you're not going to drastically change from one state to another. However, group B strep can come in and invade and that can cause potential problems even in the last few days. So, um, you know, the thing is, like, there's not, we're just, we're still at the infancy with so much of this. I mean, these studies, even look, the the first study doing this longitudinal sampling to see if we even have similar microbiomes in the vagina, one, one place that has relatively few number of bacteria, you know, that study wasn't even done until uh, 2014. And they didn't, they were looking more for BB than they were, bacterial vaginosis, than they were worried about group B strep. So, the answer is, I don't really know. There are, I know there are some probiotics under clinical trial now people are looking into to see if they can give lactobacillus suppositories effectively, vaginal suppositories, and keep the balance more towards lactobacillus and, and keep those bad neighbors of, of group B strep from coming out and overgrowing. But we're just not there. So, um, you know, again, the best recommendation, I think, is just to keep eating healthy fruits and vegetables and, you know, have your yogurt, make sure it's, you know, yogurt has active cultures and drink your kefir. But you, the one thing you do need to worry about with fermented foods, or at least my experience with fermented foods is, and I need, this is something else I need to dig in the literature more about. 
I went to a fermented foods workshop and I got so excited that I went from my regular, you know, one cup of Greek yogurt a day to adding keeper and sauerkraut and kimchi. I think it was, and so like every day I went from, you know, this small fermented food product to a whole lot and my eczema went absolutely crazy. So I looked in the literature and found that actually some of these lactobacillus actually do secrete histamines. And you think of antihistamines, right? That's what you take when you have allergies and flare-ups like that. So these are producing histamines that actually cause the flare-ups. So, you know, don't go crazy. Don't do the typical American thing and say, oh, just a little bit is great. So a whole lot might be even better. (laughs) But moderation, moderation is awesome. Don't be ordering a scubby online and starting to do your own kombucha. And yeah, totally. Like I did. No, <laughs> I did. I did. I did. <laughs> well, you know. And it was it, fun, it but a lot of work. Yeah, I haven't done that yet. I've, I've mostly stick to yogurt so far. <laughs> so how can we get these, you know, people on this GBS thing? Because that's one thing that I find, like you said, the the actual risk of it happening, of the complications is so minimal. But if it happens, it's extremely bad. And then because of that situation, we screen all pregnant women. And right. if they show to be positive, then they get de facto antibiotics during birth, which... Or before. Right, right. Well, the, so depending on what they're given, but usually you want two doses and like each place is different, but usually right. it's like two doses with four hours separation. And that's the ideal amount of dosing so that when the baby is born, that'll take the care of the GBS as that baby's passing through that vaginal canal. And you took away the GBS. And what else did you do? You know, all these other things that you took away just at that moment. You timed it perfectly. Right. That's doing harm. Yeah, it is. And and there's a lot of people working on it. I just think we're not there yet. Yeah. I So I personally, I, I that's one of my pet peeves, not pet peeves, but that's one of the things that's close to my heart because I had, um, I was DBS positive and had antibiotics with my daughter. And aside from the f- health effects of, of having antibiotics right then and, and, you know, depleting the microbiome, it was annoying. And it was like this added intervention that now I had to figure that there was this thing going in my arm that was hurting. It hurts. And then we got to repeat it every four hours. So there's a lot of reasons why it would be great to have an alternative to the, to the antibiotics. Yeah, I totally agree. And there is, I'm sure, you know, there's a vaccine that people are working on as well, but yeah, time, research dollars, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, I think we'll get there because it is something that a lot of people are very worried about. So one of the common anecdotal things that we're always hearing out there is using garlic cloves vaginally to kind of offset GBS or even yogurt. Any research on that? Not that I know of. The idea of garlic cloves just scares the the Jesus out of me. (laughs) To borrow a term from my grandma. (laughs) Because, you know, garlic is a really, 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 really antimicrobial substance so you're going to be knocking out all sorts of stuff and additionally like yeah i i just i'm not big on disturbing ecosystems so um whether it's with something that comes from the ground or comes from you know a pill bottle so as for yogurt you know again it's hard to know there's more of a chance that you might introduce something that you don't want to introduce accidentally 
Yeah, this is one of the few times where I'd be more likely to, to say if you want to do anything, sure, a lactobacillus probiotic of any of the vaginal micro, uh, vaginal lactose won't hurt you. You know, it might do some good. How it's going to get from your gut to your vagina, I don't know. No one, <laughs> no one knows that. But again, I'm, I'm actually pretty optimistic about these clinical trials with the lactobacillus, that lactin V, I think that, or a five, I'm assuming it's a five and not a V, but I think that that has a really good chance of being something that could could change the uh, ratio. We'll keep an eye on it. And if you have a link to it, I will add it to show notes so that listeners can keep an eye on it themselves too. Yeah, totally. I'll send you that link for the show notes. Fantastic. Thank you. Now, that other study that you were mentioning on on the vaginal microbiome and i i just realized like at the beginning of the show i don't know for what reason i turned australian slash british and was saying vaginal microbiome instead of vaginal (laughs) (laughs) i heard myself and i was like wait that doesn't quite that sounds weird um but anyway that the, you, and you have a link to it on your site, and I'll add it to the show notes, too, to, so that people can go take a look at it. I was skimming that article. And the one? Is that the, the one is it the one about vaginal microbiomes and ethnicity? Is that the one yes. you come out? Yes. Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. So it was the part about ethnicity that was really interesting to me, particularly because I am, I am of Latino-Hispanic descent. Like, I am Venezuelan. So, oh. yeah. So... That threw a whole different layer of complexity into the into the situation. Can you explain a little bit the ethnicity part of what this study found? Yeah, that is such a fabulous study. It's actually one of the researchers at the institute where I'm a postdoc. And so one of the things that Jacques realized is that so many of the studies, and you know, we've seen this throughout time, right? It wasn't until what was it, the 1990s that women really started getting studied for medical clinical trials. It was always done on men, white men, and people assumed, oh, it'll be the same way in women, much less ethnic diversity of women. But so uh, similar with the microbiome work, you know, we were focused mostly on white people, but being here in Baltimore and working directly with the medical school a lot, Jacques wanted to to look more at the African American community here, and also expand it to uh, Asians and Hispanics. So, in in their study, mostly refers to African American, but there are other studies, and some of his ongoing studies are actually with African women as well. What was really amazing is that they see that you can have different community state types of bacteria. So you can have um, it's kind of like I have a, a bowl, a tray of fruit out on our dining room table. And sometimes that tray of fruit has, you know, apples and pears and cherries in it. But sometimes it just has apples and pears. Okay. So those are different community states. So one where it's more diverse and the other where it's not as diverse. So those are different community states. And so what he was finding is there are all these different community states of bacteria that can exist in uh, the vaginal microbiome of different women, but that you find some of these microbiome community types are more dominant in Blacks and Hispanic women than in white or Asian women. And what was interesting about that is that the dominant community state type there 
is one that's not dominated by lactobacillus. So forever, the medical field has thought that you know, a lactobacillus vagina is a very healthy vagina, and anything that doesn't have lactobacillus is unhealthy and has bacterial vaginosis. Well, what this study really demonstrated, and, and they've continued to, to work on this ethnicity angle because it's so interesting and important. It's really important to start, to, yeah, to diversify all of our work in so many different ways. But it was really surprising to see that the majority of African-American and Hispanic women had this non-lactobacillus state. And so they would be deemed as having bacterial vaginosis by a doctor. However, they didn't have any of the signs and they seemed perfectly healthy in every other way. So it really seems like there's this ethnicity component. And again, that can get back to this whole idea of we're not just a microbiome, uh, uh, microbiome incubator, as much as I kind of like to think of humans as a microbiome incubator. <laughs> you know, we do have a human part too. And so that's where we can have these interactions between our human genetic self and our bacterial genetic self. And that's really why maybe we're starting to see where sometimes there's a fuzzy answer with either microbiome or human research. Maybe it's because we haven't accounted for ethnicity or maybe we haven't accounted for you know, some particular human gene that's influencing our uh, microbiome. Yeah. It's cool. It, but it, it's also important to say, you know, just because it's not like what we were expecting does not mean it's sick. This is not a sick microbiome. This is not an ill microbiome. This is a, ne- a natural microbiome state for these women. Right. So. No, and it's that's so important to underline. Absolutely. And then bringing it back to that GBS thing. I keep going back uh-huh. to it. But, no. you're, you know, that probiotic that's being researched, I think you called it lact- Lacto-B5? Uh, it's called Lactin-5. Lactin-5. Um, yeah. That's, I'm guessing by the name, very much anchored Lactin. on lactobacillus. Yep. And so then what, if anything, is that going to do to yep. African-American and Hispanic ethnicities yep. and will it be deemed effective or not like yep. so much right right <laughs> exactly that, those are the questions we need to be answering nowadays i mean and we need to be aware of the impact of ethnicity and diversity on these different studies that we're doing it's just like you know we can't do just mouse studies and say they're going to apply to human well even within humans you know <laughs> it's still the genes are the same but there's still some differences there and those differences seem to be really important when you're dealing with micro microbial interactions so i think that's really important and i don't know that's one thing that we really don't know is if because you you do have some women that have that non-lactobacillus dominant community state are other ethnicities as well. It's just kind of how it averages out is that most is more prevalent in Blacks and Hispanic women. So again, you know, each person needs to know their own healthy baseline. But yeah, we just, we don't know how that would, if that makes a difference. Yeah, there's so much, mm-hmm. so much fun stuff to figure out. We will wait optimistically. Do. Yeah. <laughs> On a different note, Anne, what about cravings during pregnancy? You know, so far they've been thought to be hormone-driven. Is this something that be, should be reconsidered in light of the increased understanding of the microbiome? Could it be our microbes that are, you know, have craving pickles instead of our hormones? Oh, totally. Yeah, there's there have been several different studies kind of indicating that depending on your uh, what, which microbes are in your gut seem to influence what you're craving more or less. 
And so, yeah, I could totally see that being easily. Well, actually, I guess it's kind of hard to, to disentangle hormones and bacteria in my mind, because again, with my insect work, <laughs> people don't think of insects as similar to humans. And, and there are many differences. But, you know, when it comes to host microbe interactions, sometimes these other systems it can be a little bit easier to see some of these interactions coming out. And one of the things I, I saw in one of my insect systems was that the hormones that the well, as the insect went through metamorphosis, as it went from being, you know, a wormy little maggot to, <laughs> to being a beautiful fly, <laughs> um, you know, there was this huge hormonal shift and there was a huge shift in how the microbes were. So I really, it makes me really wonder if there isn't this interaction between hormones and microbes that really there's this crosstalk. Hormones would be an excellent way for bacteria to eavesdrop on what's going on in the host or coordinate with their host, you know, however you want to think about it. So yeah, sure, cravings could easily be determined by the microbiome or influenced by the microbiome or hormones or both. Well, and it makes sense because of, you know, during the beginning of pregnancy, the hormones are changing drastically and all over the place. So, and then you get those crazy cravings or unusual for you cravings. Yeah. Mine was ice cream with the first kid and spinach with the second one. So, you know, hey. (laughs) Nice. Mine was grapefruit. I wanted grapefruit. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. (laughs) It was intensely grapefruit. That's awesome. Yay. Who knows what my microbiome was doing? Yeah, exactly. And thank you so, so much for this talk. It's been lots of fun. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. That was assistant professor, researcher, and mother of two, Dr. Anne Estes. Anne is also the human host of the blog Mostly Microbes, which has a section filled with educational modules to help you teach your kids about microbes and the microbiome, and it includes a bunch of kid books reviews. You can find Anne on Instagram at Mostly Microbes Host, and you can connect with us at Birthful Podcast. So, Are you worried about pooping during birth? Did this episode help with that? We want to know. Why don't you take a screenshot of this episode on your phone right now if you're not driving and post it to Instagram with your thoughts. Make sure to tag at Birthful Podcast so we can see it and amplify it. You can find the in-depth show notes and transcript of this episode at birthful.com where you can also learn more about my birth and postpartum preparation classes and download your free postpartum preparation plan. Birthful is created and produced by me, Adriana Lozada, with production assistance from Asia Plati. Thank you so much for listening to and sharing Birthful. Be sure to follow us on GoodPod, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and everywhere you listen. And come back for more ways to inform your intuition. Hey, Adriana here. I wanted to let you know that starting this week, we'll be going back to our older format of one episode per week so that we can start easing into the summer and you can have more time catching up and going through our fabulous birthful library. Happy listening.